Fatima Asghar shows us the many faces of sisterhood when tested by the constant waves of grief and neglect in their debut novel, When We Were Sisters. Koser, Alicia, and Noreen are suddenly orphans after the murder of their father and the death of their mother years prior. Their uncle takes the girls away from the only home they've ever known and forces them to grow up in a run-down apartment abandoned for weeks, sometimes without food and adult supervision. We mark the end of our second literary year with our interview with Fatima as they speak about the creative format of centering this story around the girls while leaving the adults nameless and at times redacted. They also share what it was like to approach this story of grief during the early years of lockdown and what it means to give oneself the permission to create beyond the limitations of others. Stay with us on another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of The Vulgar Geniuses. We are your hosts. My name is Denny. And I am Veronica. And today we are joined by our March uh, Book of the Month author, Fatima Oscar, author of If They Come For Us and When We Were Sisters, is a poet, filmmaker, educator, and performer. They are the writer and co-creator of Brown Girls, an Emmy-nominated web series that highlights friendships between women of color. Along with Safia El Hahilo, they edited Hala If You Hear Me, an anthology that celebrates Muslim writers who are also women, queer, gender nonconforming, and or trans. They are also a writer and co-producer on Miss Marvel on Disney Plus and wrote episode five time and again. Thank you for coming to the show. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for being with us. This is this is a momentous um, occasion. So um, we celebrate our anniversary in April. So mm-hmm. books come to us. All we consider March our December. Mm-hmm. Every year, our books in March have always would close us in a very like good way. Like we are so grateful that we picked your book to close our our year for vulgar geniuses yes this is this is definitely a a a beautiful treat and we cannot wait to talk to you about it but before we do that i'm going to pass it off to Denny, and she is going to go through our little hot seat moment yes um just a little getting to know you um you mentioned ashanti and evanescence in your book what songs would we hear on little fatima cd player Oh my god, my one of my favorite um musical artists when I was a kid was Ja Rule. And so <laughs> you would definitely hear a lot of Ja Rule. You would hear a lot of Evanescence, a lot of Ashanti. Um, a lot of like, you know, I grew up in the 90s and the 2000s. So there was a lot of like things I loved, like, you know, like 3LW with were people I loved. Um 
there was a lot of that kind of music of that era that was just my soundtrack to everything. <laughs> That's my college, college right there. <laughs> if you are given a chance to obtain a superpower from the Marvel multiverse, what would it be? Oh, that's a really good, probably like telepathy. I think that's a really, like, I think about like, you know, um, Professor X, like Charles Xavier. I think that's a really cool power. Um, A dollar store item must have. Ooh, definitely. Well, I love candy. So I usually get a lot of candy at the dollar store. That's and candy and juice is kind of like what I love to get at the dollar store. Yeah. As a poet, what is one of your most favorite sentences to read in one of your poems? Or do you have a favorite poem? I like I like reading Old Country Buffet, that poem. Um, I think it's like I, I used to teach a lot in high schools. And I think when I would go and and teach in high schools, like they don't care about your bio. They just want to be entertained. And so to have like a <laughs> uh, a poem that's going to like grab them. And so something like Old Country definitely would do that. So, like we were talking about earlier, your book, When We Were Sisters, um, it is a story that traces this intense bond of three orphan siblings who, after their parents die, are left to raise one another. Mm -hmm. um, we were, I was so, like, I'm going to be honest with you, I was so intimidated by your book. I was like, mm. who is this person that wrote this wonderful book? <laughs> So I was like, you know, when we were trying to make questions, I'm like, I have no questions for her. I just want to listen to her talk. <laughs> oh, that's really kind. That's really kind. Thank you so much. So um, I feel like I, I have an, a confession of some sorts to make. Uh, I feel like this is the time where I should issue an apology to our previous guests. Because <laughs> reading uh, your novel was the first time where I saw that writing is truly an art form that is often not seen as such. It's normally seen as just like this very structured thing. And your work encapsulated this fact through your use of combining poetry and prose to tell us the story of these three sisters. How is your approach to writing, knowing that it is an art form and should be treated as such? Um, thank you. That's a really beautiful compliment. And so thank you for, for saying that. Um, I, yeah, I've always thought of poetry at, or writing in general as, as a really deep art form. And I think about even as a screenwriter, like what was one of the most like heartbreaking things for me when I started to do screenwriting was people kind of treating screenwriting like it wasn't an art form or treating screenwriting like it was a blueprint. Like they were like, oh, it's the blueprint. It's really like what goes on. But I didn't, I don't find that to be true. And I even think about like when a lot of the ways that I would read plays or, or consume plays, like I couldn't always go to see them. Like sometimes you would miss the run or sometimes the tickets were too expensive, but I would read a lot of plays. And so for me, there was always a component of, of theater, of film that is purely just the writing and the mechanic mm -hmm. of seeing the language on the page and imagining a world of these characters. And so, you know, with poetry and with um, novel writing, like I seriously think of that as such a beautiful terrain where you can do so much with, with writing. And part of the thing is I want the experience of, I, I, I always remember this when I would read novels, um, I would always underline 
one of my exes was saying this, but because they were looking through a novel that I had like read and gave to them, they were like, all of your underlying things, they have nothing to do with the plot. They're always about like the sentence that's beautiful. Mm. And I was like, yeah, because I'm a poet. Like, yeah, like I, I I might not remember the plot actually, but what I remember is how I felt reading it. And I remember how the writing elicited something in me. And books for me have always been, and writing has always been a first and foremost, a, a place for that. It's always been a place where I can kind of create a, a read by reading, access a world around me and um, feel like I could live there. And so it's such an art form. It's such a trans transportive art form for me. And so in terms of both writing and reading, I, I find it to be one of the just a very, a very enjoyable experience in terms of wanting to create something that deeply moves people and isn't just about plot or isn't just about facts or isn't just about how do I get this across in, in the, you know, in the clearest way. It's often actually, how do I get this across in a way that enhances the experience of the reader? Mm. I'm glad that you said that because, you know, one of the things that we've noticed from certain authors that we've spoken to who were who started with poetry first, their books are always so good because there's this like dedication to understanding not only just the sentence form, right? But how words play within that sentence and the picture that you can paint. And, you know, no discrediting, you know, no shade to anybody else, but there's just something special about having a book written by a poet. And I just absolutely love it. And and we definitely just saw it pour throughout every every single page, even down to the structure. Um, which brings me to when we're talking about the moment where we find out that these three young girls have lost their father. Um and and the death that has happened in their in their life and you've allowed the reader to find out in this way that is like this gossip type style of conversation um that spider webs its way through a community and is done with this this phone ringing and then it is followed up with just a sentence from each auntie that receives the call and you allow readers to piece together that the father has died um recently and is following the death of the wife and has left these three daughters but as you allow this information to be divulged between the aunties, you leave out the father's name. And then we see it happen again when the adults are talking to the children about them losing their father and um, moving in with this unnamed uncle. Will you talk to us about the exploration of details and playing with the very ways that you can relay important moments within the story in this fashion? Yeah, um, that's so interesting. It's such a good observation because I actually haven't thought about that part of the the that's the opening paragraph is the y'all the ring y'all like that's the whole opening paragraph and I actually haven't thought about that since I released the book and no one has asked me about that but um but yeah I think that there's a way where in South Asian communities and Muslim communities that I know like the aunties what they say rules everything like I I've heard that about like most immigrant and communities and communities of color is like the aunties are the ones who know everything. And they're the ones who are on the phone, always talking, always being like, and then this thing happened and da, 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 and this. And so it, even in, in the part of starting the book that way, it, it shows a kind of perspective of like 
how things are warped by what people say. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it introduces this thing too that I think is so prevalent in South Asian and Muslim communities around your reputation being, and like what people say about you, even in death as being the most important and paramount thing about you. So it's about how people talk about you and how you're perceived by everyone else. And that becomes such a huge thing. And you see it run throughout the book. Like, you know, it's like how they're being perceived, how the uncle is his narrative of himself, how all of this stuff is going on. And then in terms of like the details of like never mentioning the father's name, you know, and then the redaction of the uncle, those are really intentional things to me. And in part, when I um, don't mention the father's name, it's bracketed, right? So there's just empty space. You just see the emptiness. And to me, that really got at the void of the emptiness of death of someone's gone and suddenly the way that they're spoken about or the the silence around them and the silence around things like even not hearing their name or not hearing that be said anymore is such a damning silence. And so for me, it was really important to do that. And then to also remember that these kids are really young when they lose their dad. And at that point, they probably don't even know his name. They call him dad. Like, you know, they don't at, when you're when you're kind of that young, you know, you don't you don't you might not know your parents' names. You're just like mom, dad, or auntie, whatever. Like you know, you don't you don't always know the names of people, and but what you know is your relationship to them. You know who they are to you, and and that's how you learn them. And so that that's a little bit of that. And then with the redaction of the uncle and and the the kind of thing around that is. I wanted it to feel close to the reader, right? And I think when we have like fictional characters sometimes and we put a name in or something like, oh, this person, they can feel like character that's outside of the reader's worldview. And something like a redaction <laughs> makes it feel close. It makes it feel like it's right there. And so there's kind of, and I wanted it to feel like that that strike, that that um, redaction and, and the scarring of that but then also to kind of auto have the reader auto populate their own um, name, like whatever name that they think. And I think it's really interesting because people really thought of people like they were like, oh, yeah, I, I thought of this person in my family or I thought about this person of someone I knew or this person of whatever. And it's surprising how quick that can happen when you see something like that, yeah. you know, when you see that redaction. And so to me, again, it was considering the experience of the, the reader and what I wanted to evoke from them, not just through the writing itself, but the way that the writing was being presented. I, I really feel like it for anyone that is pursuing like this writing career and they pick up your book, it says that you can do whatever the fuck you want when it terms of how you want the story to be told. And, you know, like, fuck form, like, create a new form that will fit for you because what you've done is allowed the the reader to really be immersed into the story and be pulled in and like, okay, wait a minute, what is this that's happening in this conversation? And, you know, like, you're having to flip the book or flip the page or whatever, and you're like, oh, this is, this is, this is something brand new. And it really feels like it does this, like, misfiring in your brain of what you think is literature when you're reading it and you're like oh no this thing is infinite it can be whatever you want it to be so I want to thank you for for doing thank that you. thank you for saying that that means a lot to me yeah because when I was first like it was it was such an experience like holding your book 
and like also listening to the audiobook while reading it because then you would see like why the why the narrator would like pause and why they would why would be like you know redacted and then you'll see that just like you know that blank black like highlighted space and when I twisted your book I'm like oh this fits together it was it was just kind of like this whole experience like oh like what you said like you it could be anybody from your family it could mm-hmm. have not been an uncle it could have been anybody else yeah. it could mm-hmm. have not been a, de- a father mm-hmm. it could have been anybody else and I just wanted to agree also on the fact that you know like a lot of um communities of color use it use the aunties to to like call and like it's a chain yeah <laughs> it follows this like form of like almost kind of like this its own truth at some point whether positive or negative you know right it creates this so, some sort of boundary that sets like a setting for for one community almost mm-hmm. it's so I, I think because of that your book was so relatable to an extent I think that we haven't touched for a minute mm-hmm. that's why we were like so blown away mm-hmm. of like how it can be for anybody literally yeah. so you know thank you that means a lot yeah and it's it's so interesting that thing that like the aunties are just so funny to me because it's really even the thing that you were saying about like it becomes its own truth but even in that like when in in the way that the aunties talk like sometimes you know and it it can become its own truth and my friend Krista Franklin who's an incredible author and visual artist has a book called Under the Knife which is like an artist book and in it she says this thing about how she was like sometimes I don't know what's actually fact like if if the stories my family tells about themselves are fact but they kind of become their own fact because my family chooses to tell them and I think that there's something about that there's something about like the way that something can become a fact when enough people have said it, you know, when enough people are on the phone talking about it, when enough people are talking about it internally, and then it can become kind of a fact, even if, even if it, if what happened was, was a little bit different or a little bit more complicated than that. And how interesting that is about how we tell stories and how they can kind of become their own version of an event in our heads or in our families. And then that gets passed down generation to generation, you know, and, and the fact of that. Yeah. That really makes me think about like that, you know, when you're talking about memory and though that this is, is, this is fiction, you have some writers who are writing in memoir form and you're talking about memory and you're, you're putting these stories that you've told yourself over and over that this is how it happened but knowing like time sometimes can misconstrue some things can change some details in the story and just like within that phone call you know there could be some added details in there that wasn't there in the very beginning when that mm-hmm. that conversation happened so yeah. yeah you can definitely see uh, how mm-hmm. those changes can can take place yeah so you know because we really love your book and your writing we you know, we appreciate your finesse and gentleness when writing about death, sexuality, and religion, and integrating your characters in it. How were you able to pull such raw, um, rawness in that, you know, this actually constitutes and imbibe your characters while staying true to your style and craftsmanship? Thank you um, for saying that. Yeah, I think that 
In terms of even thinking about the characters, there were several things. One is that the bulk of these characters are very young. So the the three character, three siblings are very young. When you're young and you're pressed up against impossible circumstances, like it's it's hard because then things like, you know, a character's meanness feel like the end of the world, but also they're young. And so there's the thing of like, you're a kid and you're kind of allowed to be mean and or you should be allowed to be mean or you should be allowed to have that space. And it kind of speaks to like the impossibility of the situation that these kids aren't allowed to have that space that like their, their, their actions are so um, magnified because they, because it's so their survival is so critical and it's so critical on each other when they're the only ones who they have, you know, they're the only consistent thing in, in each other's lives and how, how detrimental that can be. And then even in terms of, you know, I think that it's pretty clear that the most, the most um, damning character or the one that's, that has the, uh, has the, does a lot of harm is the uncle, right? Is that uncle. And, um, you know, in it, what I tried to do was explain how he's seen through the eyes of Koser. So when she's a kid, she can't see him with a lot of nuance. He's just the uncle, like she, he's just this uncle and he's this character. And then the older she gets, she starts to see him with more nuance and it gets complicated because he then no longer is just this evil character or this man, he becomes this other thing and he becomes more of a human mm-hmm. and um, a human with pain and a human who's not holding that pain well and who's in charge of her, but a human that is still a human nonetheless. And, you know, it's been interesting because upon releasing it, like I've talked to a bunch of different people or friends of mine, close folks who've read the book and they've been like, some, it's so interesting because some of them are like, I really appreciate you putting in a lot of layered complexity about that uncle and making him more than just a villain. And then some people are like, yeah, I see what you did. I don't care. I don't like him. Like, <laughs> you know, and being like, I, I don't, I don't forgive him. Like for, I don't forgive that character in that book. You can forgive him. That's cool. If you want to do that. I don't, I choose not to. And I think that that's so fascinating because you're like, yeah, like, but that's the case with anything. You talk to a friend who dated an ex like seven years ago and they're like, yeah, I've forgiven them. And you're like, I don't forgive them. Like that was not okay. And I think that what's interesting is that it's such a human response, right? It's such a human response to have so many different kinds of responses to characters, how the characters have different responses to each other. And I think the thing I'm most interested in is not a thing that judges, even though it's really hard to really write something where there's no judgment in it. Like, of course, you're going to see judgment throughout the book um, and the character's judgment and then my judgment as a writer and, 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 and the author and stuff. But ultimately, what I really wanted to do was get at some of the complications of what it means to be human and the stickiness of what it means to be human. And so in order to do that, you have to be able to say these characters are really complicated and they're growing up and they're all in a really complicated interdependent system where they all are exploiting each other, um, you know, uh, abusing folks, doing harm, loving each other, taking care of each other, um, you know, trying to find kindness when they can and trying to make it work. Like that's the complication of all of that book at any given moment is that no one is, no one is, you know, even clearly good or bad. Even when you think about Gosar, the person who you spend the most perspective in, you know, there are these moments where she's, she does things that are really cruel, really mean. She does things that are, 
uh, hurtful to other people. She's, she, you know, holds resentment and holds grudges and does all this stuff. And it sometimes doesn't, you know, can't, can't help her siblings and things like that, but she's a, she's a kid and she's a human and she's dealing with a lot. And so for me, it was really important to try to get as close to a lived reality as I could, instead of just archetypical characters. And you touched a little bit uh, on um, Kosar, and I just wanted to ask, um, when we are introduced to this this sisterhood within this story, um, the viewpoint is told through the eyes of Kosar, the youngest sister. Why did you decide to not only tell the story from the youngest sibling, but it to be done in this first person narrative that also gives space for voices of the mother and the father later on in this in the book? Yeah, I think for me, this was just always closer story. Like when the story came, when I started to write it, it was always first person, um, always in this character's voice. It was coming really, really quickly. And it was like, oh, and I was like, I don't know who this character is. I'm just writing things down. I'm just seeing where it goes. And then I was like, oh, like this is this character who wants to talk to me and wants to come through and wants to talk about this thing. And then, you know, these mo the moments were, so it's pretty much predominantly, like you were saying, in that first person voice and the there was this the first section is a third person that kind of like you said starts with the aunties talks a lot about the uncle and his relationship which we kind of very rarely see in the book or that's the most kind of like opinion that we get about the the relationship versus just then seeing it experientially and then it's Gosar's voice and then we see the dad um uh, several moments of the dad and then and then the mom's voice and to me, it's because I wanted to also introduce this character in context. And I wanted to say that this character, yes, you're getting a full throttle, like first person perspective, like view of what's going on. But then you also get these vignettes into the people who made her. And you get the vignettes in the people who made her who she'll never know. So there's a kind of heartbreak that you get because you're seeing the dad and you're seeing the mom but Gosar isn't seeing those things, you know? And and she and her sisters are not having any experience of seeing those things. And so what they're experiencing is, um, you know, just this kind of world in which they're not really being taken care of or loved. But then you see that there were people who really loved them and who really wanted them. And that's what brought them into this world. And I think it was just really important for me to include that in a book that contained um a lot of hurt to include that there's something that go that was was beyond what they even knew you know and like most of us we come from people and those people are complicated and those people have love and dreams and hopes and ideas for their kids and then they also have um you know the things that they're up against and and we see that in those in those sections like we see them be up against things we see the mom be up against an illness. We see the dad be up against the hustle of trying to take care of these kids and, you know, being, being a single dad, trying to figure it out on his own before something tragic really happens, you know, and we see that them exist within the context of these kids, but also exists outside of the context of these kids. And I think that that's really, that was really important for me. Yeah. I think it really made, made a lot of sense to me when I when I read like the dad and the mom's kind of like, you know, account of themselves, 
because like you said we come from people and it just made it you know because you know I think when we read when we read stories especially like yours you know we have to think about like the age of these children what what they are so you know they they're just being pushed out into this world with all these experiences but then there's kind of this like little glimmer of hope that you know there's like in the background somebody wanted these children to be here yeah and you know for unfortunate events like human life these things happen to regular people we see it every day whether we like it or not but it really humanized like oh yeah you know these children were wanted and loved even before they were conceived even before they were brought out to the world and you know hopefully that they at some point also reached that point where they would feel that there were people that loved them and mm-hmm. then, you know that it's like it's like a 360 moment for me when I read those but like you said it was heartbreaking but it was necessary for the story yeah thank you so you know, one of the things that I always look at when reading a book is just like the body of the person within the story. And the body is definitely explored a lot throughout this novel. From the very beginning, we see uh, the sisters constantly being touched during the morning of their father um, as women rubbing their unclean hands through their hair, the sexual advances and physical abuse that Kosark endures from um, Bobby and Aisha's cutting what did you want to explore about autonomy within this novel? Um, I wanted to explore, like, there, there is so much. Like, I think I wanted to explore um, what happens when, um, like, the siblings are right up on each other and there there is not really a lot of room for autonomy like so even when they're growing up they're kind of constantly called each other's names they're they're grouped into each other they're enmeshed in this way they are really really like they flatten and they become the same you know um and I think that that's um that's like one aspect of them you know is that they they kind of come up in this way that feels really, really codependent and really like there's no identity separate from each other. And then the break of like, um, closer deciding to leave and be like, I can't do this anymore. And I have to be, I have to just go, you know, and even the confusion of a body, you know, and being like, I don't really know what's happening with my body, including when someone is touching me and touching me in a way that I'm not really quite sure about what this touching is or what this touching feels like. And I think that that feels really to me accurate about like (laughs) feeling sometimes when you're, when there's not really a lot of boundaries and in how you're growing up and the way that you're even taught to disregard your own boundaries and your own self and what you need, you know, and how sometimes it feels like you need a clean cut or a clean break from the environment that you're in in order to even get a sense of who you are outside of that, you know? And even then closer is like in the older version, it's like all these people, all these lovers who come and touch me and their fingerprints stay on me. And I don't really know who, like, I don't, their faces all mix and all of this thing. And, and even the the desire and the search for autonomy 
and how difficult it is when you grew up in an environment where that wasn't um, possible. Like it, it wasn't even possible to have that, you know, uh, you're sharing a, ten, a twin bed with your sibling. Like there's no possibility to have autonomy under those conditions. And then what does it look like to have it? And so to me, that felt really important as did recovering from deep dissociation, right? And I think that is such a huge part of sovereignty and autonomy is like, reclaiming those parts of you that you discarded, um, that you didn't want to have anything to do with that you thought were like, not good or not acceptable. And or were so traumatized that they stayed frozen in a certain moment and then and then re reclaiming that. Yeah, even while you were speaking, I was just thinking about the girls, like you were mentioning them being in that space together and being, you know, no room, there's that space, but there's this widening this this distance that's coming between them as they gradually get older and and trying to like decipher all of what they've been through for themselves right and the things that are said that can't be taken back that you know that they're trying to figure out how does one navigate this relationship with a sister who has just said this horrible thing to them and that space of like now I gotta go back home and Mm -hmm. be in this bunk bed in this room with this person who just said something that was really horrendous to me with no space with no ability to be away from you yeah and no adult to come in and be like that wasn't cool like right I think that oh yeah go ahead I think that that to me was kind of like because I have I am one of three sisters so you know like that's why I think this really kind of hits home because it's like this could have been me and my sisters or this could have been like you know like everyone else in my family but the fact that I would like the thing that really blows my mind is like you know the the lack of presence of like an an adult authority figure but them to be able to figure out what they need to do and was forced to do that from a very young age because I'm the eldest I could never be Noreen like I I don't know I would probably lose my mind before I I could never, I would never be able to fill her shoes because <laughs> even up to now having my own child, I'm like, how did we end up this way? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like one day you would wake up like, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm allowed to be a parent. Like wh- what happened? Yeah. And then some days I read your book and I'm just like, nobody should have allowed me to do certain <laughs> things in my life. Yeah. And then you see this, you know, three girls just trying to like, strive for you know survival yeah so you showed us through Kosser that an ex- an example of how childhood trauma can manifest you know while you're trying to live your adult life um mm-hmm. but these sisters managed their lives in the way that they knew best they moved on and reached a space as adults where we saw them owning their lives at the end of the novel you feel a vindictive sense of hope that they would be all all right how important was this tone change when you were writing this towards the end of the novel you know it was it was really important to me that there be some kind of hope that happens you know and that even in the possibility of distance and space and separation there's still the possibility of a better future moving forward and so that felt really important to me to include And then in terms of, because originally when I had first 
a lot of the early drafts of the novel, the mother section was the last section that the book ended on so that it was going to end on that, which meant that the final words that the book was going to end on was goodbye, my angels, goodbye. And that read was a devastating read. Like when you read it that way, <laughs> when that was the final section, okay. it was quite, it was really devastating. It was, you know, it, it was a very, very devastating read. It was very effective, but it was very devastating. And there was a moment where I was like, I can't do that. Like I can't and I can't end the book like that. Um I can't end this this book that's already so heartbreaking about these three siblings with more with this devastation. Um and then the section the section that is the ending now came to me, the one about the trees. And I wrote it and at first I was like, well maybe it's the beginning, maybe it's the middle. Like I was thinking about where where it was and then it felt like actually a really natural ending. And it felt like because it was reaching, it was kind of a zoomed out approach of like looking at everything and being like, look at the way that cycles regenerate, you know? Um, and so then, and then it meant that the book ended on um, be, before going back into the earth, before becoming something new. And so it ended on the word new instead of the word goodbye. And that felt to me like the way I wanted to go, you know, was the idea that there could be rebirth, the idea that there could be regeneration and the, the idea that something new could happen um, versus the cycles that these siblings had continued to be in for, for so long. And so that's that's why I chose that. And that's where it came from. But for a long time, that wasn't the ending. The ending was um, was quite different. And even though that section is still in there, uh, it, it's it changing the order of it made it an entirely different book almost. And that um, that's really fascinating is how important order is, how important sequence of events is, how important a, a shift like that, because if the book had been different, it would have felt really different. Let me follow up and ask you, what does revision mean for you then? You know, not only like within just that ending within the story, but you as a writer, when you're when you're sitting down to these pieces and you're trying to rethink how you want things to go, that this could have ended. This could have been the ending. This could have been done. But leaving that space open, what is revision for you? Yeah, revision is like the most important process of right part of writing for me. And it's it's like the one I hate. <laughs> <laughs> like it's always you know I think we love to I think it's so funny because no matter how much you write or at least for me no matter how much I write I'm always like hopeful for the myth that I'll just be able to write one draft of something and it'll just be genius you know where I'm like oh and every time I'm devastated that it doesn't happen that way <laughs> like oh you mean I have to like really sit and tinker and work on this thing like and like think about things and think about every line and think about how things are being read and and to me revision but revision makes the book revision makes something go from something that's like in your notebook to then something that's like quite um that that can be shared you know that can be in the world and that can be something and revision is really important um because you, you know you do things where you repeat the same things sometimes the plot doesn't make sense because you thought this thing and then this thing and you have to go back and revise and you have to go do this and then like i said sometimes it's actually thinking about what is the emotional component of this and how do I want to develop it? And even I think about like early drafts of the book, the uncle didn't have as much humanity. Like that was something that I back 
worked in because I was like, oh, he's not coming across three-dimensional. Like I have to do some work in order to like make him three-dimensional. And so, and make him, so it feels real where he's still as scary as he is, but we're doing this thing where he he's a human, you know, and we're valuing his humanness. And, and that, that's really, that was really important. And I think these things around, you don't get that on the first go, you know, sometimes you're just pouring out whatever's coming out and you have to go back and you have to revise and you have to, you have to cull, you have to use your expertise to really um, bump out the stuff that doesn't need to be there. And to be honest with yourself and say, am I in love with this line and it's not actually doing anything for the book? Or am I in love with, because so long, my idea was that we were going to always end it on the mother. We were always going to end it on, it was from the beginning. That's what I thought, you know? And um, and it was really a moment where I had to be like, I know this was my original idea and yet this, this isn't working or, or if I do this, it's not that it's not working. It's that, what is the, is this how I want the reader to feel after they're done with my book or do I want them to feel different? And, and so I, I, I had to change it, you know, and that was only, that was something that no outline could tell me that was only something that I could do. I don't write with outlines anyway. So that that's a mute point, but it was something that I was like, Oh, Oh, I, no one else is going to tell me this. Like I have to sit here with this book and realize that actually some things need to be shifted in order for me to tell the story I want to tell in the way I want to tell it. Hmm. Have you always been this intentional and like so passionate about this art form that you create? Cause I can feel it through the screen. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I take I take this work really seriously. Like, you know, I think that it's really important to me and I feel really lucky that I get to do this and I feel really lucky that I get to write any anything, you know, and to me it's not a thing that I take lightly or I take for granted and and the art of it is is very important. It it's not um you know, sitting there that with this being this intentional um it's very important to me. It's the kind of what you were um, saying about the, about the, about poetry and the uh, going from poetry to novel writing. Something I think about poetry is it teaches you the rigor of a word and it teaches you the rigor of a line. It teaches you the rigor of what something looks like on the page. It makes everything so quiet and it brings down how important are these words, you know, that you have on a page. Like you can have a few lines and there's, they're so important. And so, they're like, it's like casting a spell. It's, just, it's, it's so deep in how you're doing it. And so I think for me, the reason I take this so seriously is, is I, I know the impact of what, it, of, it, of what a word can do. You know, I know how deep that can go. And so I try my hardest and I know I make mistakes and I can't be as intentional, you know, or not mistakes, but that I make like, um, I do things and then I, they're learning moments and I learn from them. But I, I think that they're, it's important for me to, to be intentional with the work that I create and the work that I put out. Um, so the, the sisters, they have had to make an attempt at building a home in this separate apartment that belongs to their uncle. And they have gotten older and must now create a boundary between the space. Uh, they're having to put up a sheet whenever the, the uncle is there. And um, and the rest of the entire apartment belongs to the uncle. He can do and what, come as he pleases. And so in it, there's a particular part where you write that they were annoyed that what separated them was this thin piece of fabric, annoyed that their uncle was has so much space for himself and yet he has come for theirs 
Is it safe to say that this statement is the equivalent to saying that the devil will do his best to steal your peace? Because that line right there, I think I, I had to read it a few times because it just kind of like just sat with me. I know what it is to you. You want to have your own and somebody is still stepping in trying to take what little bit of joy that you try to have for yourself. Yeah, I think absolutely. Like I, I think absolutely like that feeling of, Cause it doesn't, you know, you see something like that. You're like, this doesn't make sense. Like you have all of this space, you have everything. And yet you want to come down here and you want, there's three of us in this little, little space. And you still want to be up in here and be like, you know, putting like trying to control everything and put your little hands on everything and do everything. Like why? Like if you're going to leave us alone, leave us alone. Like, you know, (laughs) but we don't even get that. We don't even get that feeling. And I think that's, it's so true. It's that feeling of like, when you're like, listen, if you're, you know, if you're going to leave, if you're going to like not engage with me, if you're going to not do this, then why do you still come here and try to pick at me? Like, you know, I think about folks talk about this when they talk about like fuck boys, when they're like, okay, so you acted this way, but then you still want to come around and you still want to act this way. Like, leave me alone. Like it's, Mm -hmm. and it's that feeling of like, yeah, you won't even let me have my peace. Like you won't even let me have like this little thing. Like I can't have anything to myself because then you want it or you want to take it. And that that feeling of ownership and that feeling of control that comes from someone when they have that. Yeah, that's what I felt like even when when is uh, having this conversation with Bobby and he's he's like, why'd you stop talking to me? And he's like, bruh, you the one who stopped talking to her because you got you somebody else. Like, <laughs> let's be real about the situation. You know that right. when someone says, okay, that's how it is. I'm gonna ignore you. That's, it always like blows my mind when I see that type of reaction from people. And you're like, really? Like, yo, right. what are you, what is it that you really want? Like yeah. on that. And the thing is, what they want is they want the dynamic, right? Like they want to, they want the thing where they want to feel like they're in your life or they're doing something or they're around, but then they want you to do it on their terms. Like every, it's, it's always about control. And even that thing of like, yeah, that moment with, with Bobby, when she's like, you have Karina, you have all this stuff, you like go and you do this thing. And then it's like, why did you stop talking to me? And it's like, well, you know, and then in the conversation that Bobby and, um, and ghosts are having where they're, where he's like, you know, you're cool, but Karina's my girl. Like, why are you being so difficult? Like kind of has this attitude towards her and she's literally not saying anything. Like, she's just like, okay, okay, like, like, what do you want me to do? Like, you know, like, and and then like, you know, him being like, kind of just having this vibe, like he's not a bad guy. And like, you know, he's young, he's also young. Like he's also young, which is like the hard thing about someone like that is, they can wreck, they can cause emotional devastation, but they're also still very young and they're figuring their stuff out too. You know, they're not mature enough to maybe realize that that's not something that you should be doing to somebody. But that thing of you see how much he takes from her and how much she's almost kind of dissociating and and not really even being able to put up a boundary because of the environment that she's in and then how, how hurtful he can be, you know, and then still pick someone uh, that he deems as being better than her, you know, in, instead of her and how, how hard that is for her. Yeah. How complicated, <laughs> you know, human life is and like just trying to grow up and just, you, you just want to be left alone, but there are leeches in the world. And I think 
you know, for them to recognize that what their uncle was doing also was a sign of like, to me, like, oh, they're growing up. They're, they're realizing certain things are not supposed to be that way. Yeah. Um, but so the authors that we speak to time and time again, stress about representation and, you know, finding yourself in literature. How pivotal was it for you to allow yourself to create these characters that may reflect another facet of being South Asian, queer, and Muslim? Yeah, you know, what was really interesting was when I was like writing this book, I was like, this is just so, to me, it was like, I was like, this is so not, especially having just worked on Miss Marvel and like working on uh, in these other things. Like I was like, you can't, this isn't like a representational book. This is a book about these characters and what they're doing, right? And you know, I had a lot of fear about writing this book because I didn't want, there's such few representations of like Muslim people, of South Asian people in nuanced ways, even though there's there's a lot more now than there probably has ever been, you know? Um, but it just, I didn't want folks to be like, oh, so so all Muslim men are abusive, like thinking about the uncle or like all oh, da, 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 like, you know, people can get really um, unnuanced when it comes to certain things. And I was nervous because of that. And then I was like, it's not my job. Someone's inability to see something is not my job. Like what my job is, is to write characters and stories that I really want to write and and matter and mean something to me, even if they go against respectability politics a bit. And even if they, you know, go into really incredible nuances of what it means to be human. And then also that book, everyone in that family is Muslim and everyone is very different, you know? And so you have, you know, Mimu, this character that's so loving and so incredible and you have the uncle, right? And then you have auntie who's so gentle and caring and stuff. And then you have the, the um, you know, uh, the uncle's wife and you have this other thing, right? And you have the aunties who are gossipy, but then you have this aunt and then you have you know, the differences between Aisha, Noreen, and Gozer. Like, you have all of this stuff that's happening, um, all of these characters. And really, it's just a mosaic of a family, of a really complicated family. You have all of this complication of who these characters are. And that that kind of almost in some ways is representational, but also has nothing to do with representation because there's right. so many of them. And and to me, I think that's what's really important. And as people of color, as, as writers of color, you know, as artists of color, we have a thing where we have a certain kind of representational burden put onto us that none of our white counterparts have, you know, they don't have that same kind of thing. And so they're able to write whatever and write stories about whatever and not have it deemed back onto them as, well, what does that mean that you're saying about this thing? Like, what is it? What, is, what are you saying about this relationship with this person? And it's like, I'm not saying anything. I'm just showing <laughs> This is a thing that is in the human possibility of being a human. Like this is a story that exists within the possibility of being a human. This is a story that has emotional resonance. And I think that something I realized was even how much I had been policing my own self from creating nuanced characters because I was afraid of um, the representational question and how important it was for me to shed some of that so that I could write books that I and characters that I want to write regardless of if they fit into a certain kind of representational politic or not yeah because I think you know that burden is always with people of color you know they're like oh it's not an immigration story oh it's not about the plantation 
and it's right. kind of like you know then it's not supposed to be you and I think yeah. sometimes it you know it you know like we're not a monolith we're not supposed to be put in a box as we've been in a box for so long <laughs> let us write whatever the fuck we want and read whatever whatever we want to enjoy and I think that's why we really liked your book because it you know it's it's there to exist on itself and to speak for itself you know and thank you so much yeah we we love it we we like we can like fangirl on you and what you've written but you know yeah you're in a conversation with two libras so we're going <laughs> to like just like you know gush all over you on this book <laughs> but but it's, it's but it's the truth um so reaching a space when you are ready to heal for me takes a lot of effort and takes a lot of resilience you know, we've learned also through in one of your past interviews that you've also, you know, lost your parents as well. Besides allowing yourself to write this exceptional novel, in what other ways do you find healing for yourself? You know, this novel was interesting because I wrote it during COVID and, or I wrote a lot of it during COVID. I had written a lot of it before, but the bulk of the work I was doing was when we were in quarantine and we were in lockdown for like two years, you know, <laughs> and it's, it was really hard because there was a lot of isolation and there was a lot of like loneliness and then working on something that had such hard themes, it was really difficult emotionally. And I think for me, what became really apparent was that I had to have like a robust life that was outside of just this, the, my work and the creativity of what I was bringing forth, even though it means so much to me. And so, you know, I had to it was like the first time that I was doing really active meditation practices. The first time that I was like really, really being like, okay, you know, aside from therapy, what does it mean to live like a lifestyle where I'm well and not just, um, oh, I have a crisis. So I have a mo like kind of how I would engage with it before, which was like on autopilot and then, oh, I have a crisis and then this thing. And so this thing needs attention. And then what does it mean to actually think about like, how do you regulate your nervous states at all times? And how do you do things where you're, you know, feeling centered and grounded and, and what are grounding practices that exist on a day-to-day -day level to make me feel good. And um, even when I, if I don't have time, you know, like if I can't do something that's like big or robust, robust, like what can I do in like two minutes? What do I have? What do I have access to? What do I have? How do I gain resources in order to be able to regulate in a way? And I think that that is just really, really important. And I think especially in the turbulence of the things that so many of us have gone through in the last few years, let alone our entire lives. Like, I think more and more everyone has been being like, wellness is really important. Like, how do you create things that limit your stress levels, that make you feel safe, that make you feel like you have access to things? How do you kind of really uproot and change certain parts of your life to, to do that? And so I think for me, a lot of that is around like friendship, uh, community, like feeling really like I have people around me that I, that I can trust, that I feel safe around, that I can have nuanced conversations with having a robust life that's outside of just art making. And, um, and like, you know, doing things like meditation, doing things like yoga, doing things like thinking about e eating well or how to cr uh, create a, a diet that feels sustainable and good to me. So really thinking about my holistic living and not just, um, you know, th this is an issue and, and I need to fix this issue. So I would be remiss if I don't say this, because um, this this is truly important. 
Brown Girls, your web series, had me in a choke hold. <laughs> Exclamation point. Uh, I found this web series after Googling uh, for a show. I wanted I wanted something that would feed me like Issa Rae's Miss, uh, Miss Education Adventures of an Awkward Black Girl. I love that series so much. And somehow I found your show after doing a search on it and was blown away. Um, it was a gift. It truly was a gift. And I, I've gotten to a place where I've accepted that I really love watching television like I need it probably even more to more than books to me I love tv it's just something about being able to consume it and how people might you know get a record and they know the liner notes and who wrote what I had to find out like who is behind this and like finding you um to know like you brought this web series to life. It was just truly just amazing. It was before I, even before I knew who Jamila Woods was. So just thanking you for like bringing her into my world. And yeah. So Thank on, you. On that note, nice. I just was curious as to like, um, first wanting to say, just thank you for writing it. And then second, like, how did it come to be that you wrote, this web series because it was so good it was just thank you that means a lot to me I wrote brown girls um literally like I I had been doing the artist way and something that I don't know if you guys know that book it's like a like a creative basically like creative therapy and when I was like doing it um what I noticed like in my morning pages was I was like oh I really want to like write for TV. Like I really want to do this. And, but I had no, you know, I didn't go to film school. didn't know anybody who wrote, worked in TV. Didn't know, didn't know anything. And just was like, people like me don't often get there. This was in, you know, 2015. Like this is like before all the new surgeons of like seeing people of color in TV in a, in a much more intense way than we were seeing before. And, um, and I just was right. I would be like, I really want to do this. I really want to do this. And then I was like, cool, I'm just going to try. So I just like sat and like tried to write something and then wrote something, got a bunch of my friends together. Cause I used to work in theater. I used to work for Steppenwolf who were like actors and, and folks who knew things. And we did a table read of it. And when we were doing the table read, you know, my friend Sam, um, you know, at the time had been like, I really want to do this. And then we were like, cool, let's do it. Like, let's make it. And then we, we shot it. She shot it. Um, we, right. We shot it on $20,000. So it's a very, I know that seems like a lot for, for me, I was like, that's a lot of money at that time. And then working in film, it's like nothing, <laughs> $20,000 is nothing. So we shot this web series on $20,000 and then it organically kind of had this experience of we dropped the trailer and then it kind of blew up and in a way that we didn't expect. And people were like, we really want to see this. We really want to know, we, we really want to, you know, we're interested in what you're doing. And that kind of, um, trajectory was really, really um, magical and, and was really, really amazing to kind of see something that was created in such a grassroots way. And so organically, like me just literally being like, I'm just going to try to write something like friends, will you go do a table read with me? Like going from that to seeing it um, be made was, was really, really uh, beautiful. And um, a, a thing that I feel really grateful that I got to be a part of. Yeah. That was a huge part of <laughs> I just just want to say thank you again because it's you know it's really something when you when you are able to find uh, treasures like that out on the internet, you know this very you know for now free space to be able to go and and seek out creativity in that in that manner, 
and that show I I swear I think for a good like year after you know I was like what's going on where is it going is there a season two what's going to happen and then to see you like explode and do all of these wonderful things and write these books and just have this career that you are having now it's been truly a blessing to watch uh your growth throughout this time so I just I'm just like thankful that you back then in 2015 saw like let me just do something because it could have just you know just been something you wrote down and forgot about and it turned into something beautiful such as that thank you that means a lot to me thank you so much can we also talk about your uh short film retrieval yeah um so how how was that how was that formed and because you know when I saw the trailer I was like this is how it would look like I feel if your book when we were sisters were kind of being adopted into kind of like you know also maybe a series or a movie how did that all came about yeah so um retrieval really came because Retrieval. So the premise of retrieval is that it follows um, a soul retrieval in the aftermath of sexual assault. And it came to me, actually, Brown Girls came to me this way too. Brown Girls, I started writing after I had a dream. And it was like, I felt like I could see the scene. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I started writing it, you know, and retrieval came to me very similarly. Retrieval came to me through a series of dreams. And then I was like, okay, like, gotta write this thing, you know, and I, um, it was a, but, you know, it's a really personal, a lot of the work I do has a personal touchstone at, at some point, even if it's fiction, there's a personal touchstone into it. There's a personal thing into it. There's a thing I'm trying to get at that feels very real to me. And retrieval, um, is, is, a felt it's very personal. It's about sexual assault. It's about, it's also about the idea that you can get the part of you that was stuck or harmed back, you know, and it's the idea that you can unfreeze that part of you when we were sisters has a lot of that similar tonally you know where it's like this is the part like I'm now being split from my body and this is the part of me that's being split um and I think that so it came I wrote it and then I was like I'm gonna make this I'm making this thing and sometimes when you're making something you there's nothing else like you're like this is what I'm doing. Nothing else matters. What I've done before doesn't matter. What I've um, what I'm gonna do doesn't matter. This is the only thing that matters. You can't see anything else. You're like nothing else matters. And so with retrieval, it felt that way. It was like nothing else mattered. With when we were sisters, it felt that way. I was like, if people were like talk about if they come for us, and I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like I I I only have one thing that matters to me right now. And um and um. With retrieval, you know, it was like we fundraised, we got grants from Sundance and from Islamic um, Film Society, um, or sorry, Islamic Scholarship uh, Fund and ISF, and then we got um, we we raised a bunch of money on Kickstarter, um, uh, and so we basically like got this budget together to shoot this film in very quickly we we and we were like we have two grants we have this like let's go and do it so it was, felt very similar with brown rose was like, duh, 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 let's go you know and um and then we we uh shot it and um it we it's complete it's done you saw the trailer we don't we don't have it released online yet because we're applying to film festivals right now but it came in this way where when the project came it felt like it was the only thing that needed it was like nothing else matters you need to do this and that is just, I don't know when something like that happens, 
when that, when projects come like that, everything else is, doesn't matter. <laughs> like It's like something, something needs to be done. You know, this thing is being asked to be made and every single thing is showing me that this thing needs to be made. And so I need to make this thing. I need to just knock out everything else I'm doing, suspend it, whatever, and do this. And so that's really what that felt like. That's what that felt like when retrieval came through. It's really what, when we were sisters felt like too, but when we were sisters was harder because it's or hard in a different way because it was a novel and it, it takes a long time and you're just in it by yourself. And I was just like, Oh, I want, I want to go have fun. Like, you know, I want to go do something else, but I made, I made retrieval and when we were sisters at the same time. Um, so both of those projects were, were really like needing a lot of my attention. When you're, when you're making projects like that and you're telling somebody about it, do you ever get like, how are you going to do this? Oh yeah. 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 A hundred percent every, every day. But I also, I'm, I'm very like acutely aware of the audacity that it you have to be in order to be an artist. Like people think you're crazy. Like, you know, you're like, I'm going to do this thing. I feel that it's the only thing that matters. And so I've stopped doing all of these other things I was supposed to do. So I could do this thing. And people are like, that's irresponsible. And you're like, I suppose, like, <laughs> I don't know. I, it, it's, uh, there's not really another thing I can do. And then, you know, I remember I was, um, I was meeting with a grant about it and they were like, so you're shooting in two weeks. Um, you don't have mo- you don't have the money to shoot. Um, like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm going to make this. And I was like, I don't care how I'm going to make this. And the person on the grant, I remember my, in my interview, they were just like, I don't know why, but I believe you. Like, I believe that you're going to go and do this, like, regardless of anything. And I was like, I, it's because I am. And then they gave me money. Like, you know, they were like, here you go. Like, go, here's your principal shooting, go make the, go make the thing. And I think that thing of like, when you're just like, cause sometimes you're just like, I'm going to make this regardless. So either you're going to see me as a good investment and you're going to partner with me or you're not. And if you're not blessings, like deuces, good luck to you and good luck to me. And like, there's no, there's not even hurt or pain. It's just like, yeah, go do what you are being called to do. Someone is going to come make this thing with me. Like I, because my momentum, I have to make it like I am already on the path. And so either you're going to be on the path with me or you're not, you're going to be on your own path and you're going to be doing something or our paths are going to intersect and then they're not. And I think having that mentality is like, especially with filmmaking, it's the only way that you get anything made is because you're like, like literally with Brown Girls, people would tell me they were like, because they were like, there's no white people in the show. Um, It's not, you shouldn't do that. Like it wouldn't get made. And I was like, I don't care. (laughs) I don't (laughs) care. Like every time, every meet, so many times. And I was just like, I don't care. I don't care. You're saying something to me. I don't care. I'm going to make the thing I'm going to make. And we did it, you know? And I think that thing about that is like, you just, you're just like, I'm going to do the thing, you know, at every project, somebody says something to me, you you can't do that. You can't do that. How many, I've been told that my whole life. I've been told that for every single thing I've made, I've been told very extremely by people that I could not do the thing I was doing because it defied convention. It wasn't going to be made. I didn't have white people in the thing. I didn't da, 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 whatever, 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 whatever. There's always something. And I always, I'm just like, cool. I'm going to make the thing I'm going to make. And then I make it, you know, and then they're like, I never said that. Or they like I completely then don't remember that thing. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
it's okay. I remember like, we don't have, you know, we don't have, I'm not, I don't have to like bring that up to you consistently, but I surely remember that. And I think that thing about when you're an artist is doesn't matter what anyone else says. If you know your vision, you just have to do the vision. You have to just, and you have to figure out who's going to help you make the vision. Yes. That, that right there. That's the, that's the line right there. The vision and keeping it. It makes me think of, um, I remember hearing a, a part of a conversation between Jill Scott and Questlove and her calling him out and saying that when you heard my album, you said nobody is going to buy that. And, you, you know, it's like that album was one of it's the defining. She is on tour because of that album right now to celebrate right. the anniversary of like you, man, told yeah. me that nobody was going to buy this thing. And now everybody knows my name. So it's really something when you know yourself. Right. And imagine if she had listened to him. Right. And that's, that's the thing, too, is also he's like, he's amazing. He had everyone has lapses or bad judgment or doesn't believe in something. Everyone has it. It actually doesn't really need to say something about you. But when you are the person receiving that, you need to be able to not put that to your heart. You know how there's going to always be people who try to say something to make you not create, to make you not write, to make you whatever. That could be for many, many different reasons. They're afraid. They're scared. They're jealous. They don't believe in you. They really just, you're just not there. You're not meant for them. They're, you're not their audience. Like they're not your audience. Like whatever it is, you just have to remember that you can't internalize that because then that's what get that's what keeps that's when you stop making the thing and what a tragedy like what a tragedy if she had listened to him yeah what a tragedy you know and and so I think we have to remember things like that like we have to remember that and we have to remember sometimes we're the quest love in that moment sometimes we're the one being like I don't know about that and that's okay that's our we're allowed to have an opinion we're allowed to have an opinion but, you know, we cannot be, we cannot, we cannot internalize other people's opinions to the point where we stop making the things we want to make. Yeah. So we are at the part of our conversation that we have with everyone. We ask them this question and we'll give you, we'll give you uh, options. So <laughs> we either want to know your top five favorite books of all time or the top five things that you are most excited about are right now that you want people to know. So you, you get to pick. Mm. Okay. Let me try top five books of all time. Okay. There, you know, it might, it, it might change. We'll see. But <laughs> um, in this moment here, I'm going to turn on the light because it's, it's a little dark. Um, So I think in this moment, if I were to say the top five books that I, of all time for me, um, and it's not an order, it's just top five, um, God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy, um, Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison, um, um, Dang, I just, I know. I, oh, um, Everything is Illuminated by Jonathan Safran Foer. That book was like, I, re I read in high school and was like the reason why I was like, oh my God, like you could, you could be a living writer. Like it blew my mind. 
that you could do that. And I thought it was so well executed. Um, I'm trying to think. I'm like, okay, what else? Um, uh, Ross Gay's uh, catalog of Unmatched Gratitude. And... Probably Loose Woman by Sandra Cisneros. Well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen out there. Oh, can I do a fix? Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and uh, Dictate by Teresa Huckinshaw. There you go. All right. Mm -hmm. That's a solid list right there. <laughs> well, uh, Fatima, I just want to say thank you from the bottom, the top, inside, out of my heart for joining us in conversation. Uh, this is definitely... This is a top, top night. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank y'all for having me. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, you know, you, this book was in the National Book Award list, long list. And when when I saw your book, I said, we have to read your book. I don't care how, what, when, <laughs> where. But I think this this book is one of like the books that I might, I would reread as I go through like different stages in like my life. Um, it really holds a special place in, in me right now. Cause we've, we've, we read like books weekly and to encounter a book that would kind of make me like almost like speechless. I'm like, yeah, you know, she has, they have presented, I would consume end of story it's Period. usually very um very unlikely so thank you so much please don't stop creating i think you know the the stuff that you create whether it be visual arts written you know film anything that you create i think a pancake <laughs> <laughs> you know like really really speaks of like the human experience and in the world that is close to trash you know we need moments like this to remind us you know that we need to be kind to each other that all of us are flawed we have our shining moments we have you know mistakes that we can learn from and you know moments like this i appreciate because you know this is this is why we do what we do mm -hmm. you know to talk to people like you so more people can hear and read the stuff that you that you work on so thank you thank you so much that means a lot to me thank you both so much for taking the time to read the book and talk to me about it and thank you for for taking the time to talk to us about everything tonight uh you take care you enjoy the rest of what's left of your day thank you you too all right bye, bye. bye. We hope you enjoyed our show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Vulgar Geniuses. Our theme song that you're not in your head along to was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Dammit. That's S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast. See you soon. Deuces. Deuces.